It's time for To The Last Drop Podcast with Liam Delcom and Brendan Nell. Welcome back. It's To The Last Drop Podcast. I'm Brendan Nell, and with me again, as normal, is Liam Delcom. Liam, uh, this weekend we heard it was the World Cup final that everybody wanted. Do you agree? I think we need to define everyone. I mean, it's a very broad uh, statement uh, to suggest that uh, you're speaking on behalf of uh, the entire world, of humanity as we know it. Um, (laughs) So, no, I don't agree with it. I think there certainly would have been a a sentiment in France and in Ireland uh, that there's unfinished business. But uh, as for the rest of the world, I don't think we particularly care what they think. Yeah, of course, we're talking about the Six Nations opening game, Ireland and France, which Ireland handily won, uh, really outclassed France. But um, I think my apt description would probably be more the fifth place playoff that everybody wanted. (laughs) Okay, you don't need to remind them of it. But um, yeah, look, I mean, they obviously fell short in the quarterfinals of the World Cup and they felt that uh, in both, both instances that they had a lot more to offer at the last World Cup. Uh, but that's the nature of the beast. I mean, if you play uh, in a semi-final or in a, or in a quarter-final of a World Cup, um, uh, you know, there's there's every chance of you falling short. And this is what, what's happened again. I mean, uh, I don't know how many times we're going to say this about Ireland, but they came up short again mm-hmm. at the quarter-final stage. France uh, would probably feel more hurt given what they've invested in that World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, home in- soil. Invested is an interesting word. Well, and it's pointed. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they did everything they, they could to, uh, you know, to bring some joy to the, to the French rugby public. But uh, it wasn't to be, and that's the, that's the nature of World Cups. I mean, people are going to leave uh, disappointed. They're going to feel that they've, you know, didn't fire all their shots and they'll be regret and... Uh, the four years to the next World Cup, I think that's the, the, the thing that sort of weighs you down mostly. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that you're going to have to wait that long before you can rectify, uh, you know, you, the things that you feel that you should have done right. Um, but, you know, if you look at the Irish performance, I think they've, um, they've embraced it. I mean, mm. they've basically gone out there and said, like, you know what, uh, we're going to keep at it. Well, I think just my parting shot on that little comment from the commentator was it's quite rich calling it um, the World Cup final if your team's never got past the quarterfinal uh, mm. to try and get in. So, but uh, let's, let's not, I mean, that was one throwaway comment. I think we could spend the whole day laughing about that. Uh, I think, yeah, turning to their performance, uh, it was quite, quite a clinical, incredible performance by the Irish. I think we all expected this, you know, the last two years we've seen these ding-dong battles between them mm. that eventually the, the sort of the stranglehold, the, the arm wrestle gets broken right near the end of the game. Um, and this one wasn't even a contest. It was over mm. from you know, 10 minutes in the game. Uh, and by the time Paul Willemser left the field with the red card, uh, it was, what, 17-0. So it was, the game was all over by then. And, of course, that probably galvanized France a bit. But, uh, yeah, uh, two, two points there. One, um, if, at this level of the game, if you're still tackling like Paul Willemser did, you shouldn't actually. He <laughs> yeah. was very lucky not to get the red card in the first um, yeah. yellow card, and the second card it wasn't even a question. So, uh, yeah, that's the. And secondly, I just thought Ireland were a class above the French on the day. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, I think if you look at Ireland, it was kind of the performance that you expected from them, if, especially if you look at their record over the last few years. Uh, there were question marks about how they would go 
in the absence of uh, Johnny Sexton and maybe a couple of other senior players. Uh, but they seem to have gone about that in a very seamless way. Uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, at the start, Jack Crawley, the guy who plays uh, fly-off now, filling big boots, a um, couple of wobbles at the start, but he came through it in the end with flying colours. So uh, Ireland, obviously, in that position now have a few options, but he seems to be the, the guy now in pole position. Um, Joe McCarthy in the second row, uh, stellar performance uh, away from home, uh, you know, in front of hostile uh, in front of a hostile crowd mm-hmm. um, stood up marvellously in that test uh, and and as I said earlier I mean it's the kind of performance that you expect from Ireland um, and has probably set them up for another Grand Slam because you know there was a, a lot of talk before the game about whoever wins this game might actually go on to win the Grand Slam I know it's early days but that's the way they've set up this particular installment mm-hmm. of the Six Nations there is the risk uh, of it being a, a damp squad you know, after the first round of matches. Well, definitely so. And I think, uh, I, just on your first comment about Jack Crawley, I saw a tweet that really made me laugh. It was when the Irish guys who uh, on Twitter who sent out this tweet saying, who knew it was Johnny Sexton holding us back all, this, all these years? <laughs> I saw that as well, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, That really made me chuckle. But what a performance. And, and I think also, if you put it in context, Marseille, I mean, I know they play in, France, in, in Paris most of the time, but Marseille is normally one of France's strongholds. And mm. to, to win in that sort of fashion in Marseille, mm. okay, fair enough, it was against 14 men, so you've got to take that into account. But, yeah, that was really impressive. And I, and I think with one eye on July this year, where Ireland will be coming to South Africa. I think they've really laid down the marker. I think we realize that mm. if you want to talk about possible World Cup finals that nobody saw, um, yeah, that that almost would be what you're talking about in, in July, not in, in the Six Nations. Because when Ireland come down here, there's certainly some unfinished business for the Springboks. They've lost against Ireland the last two times they played them. Um, what is it, five out of the last seven or something? Like yeah, it's, it's not a good record. Mm. And, um, you know, while Rossi and, 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 and Jacques and, and, and the box have uh, you know, climbed so many mountains and lifted so many trophies, um, that is probably the one thing that probably still bugs them knowing them like we do. Mm. And they'd want to set that mm. record straight in, in July. Uh, but it also shows how tough that challenge is going to be. Ireland went to New Zealand and won a test series there. Mm. Um, yeah. And what we saw on Friday night... Uh, yeah, you could easily say they they back themselves to win a test series in South Africa as well. Yeah, you mentioned the word mountains there, and it was a, a significant peak for them uh, to win uh, in France, in Marseille. Uh, I mentioned earlier a, a hostile environment. It's different to the Stade France, which is just this massive stadium with a lot of people in it. Uh, Marseille is different because the crowd feels like they're on top of you, uh, and they, I think, they probably make more noise there than they do in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a huge effort for them to uh, to win that game, and I think almost ideal preparation for a trip to Loftus uh, later this year. Because if you can win there, you can you know you will look at a, a trip to Loftus. Admittedly, um, altitude will be a different uh, will, will be a different challenge. Um, but in terms of um, sort of overcoming their own demons and and sort of emboldening them. Uh, I think that was significant. Um, I think it's also significant that we play the first test against them at Loftus and not at the yeah. coast uh, to sort of uh, 
try and get onto the front foot and not uh, make the mistake the box did in 2016 when they lost the first one in Cape Town. Yeah, well, I think I think there's 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 one sort of caveat to that, and if the uh, and I've got no reason to think that some of the reporting hasn't wasn't true, but um, if it means we're going to be playing Wales in the warm up game at Twickenham the week before the Loftus game, that almost negates your advantage at at altitude a bit. Mm. Um, although yeah. a lot of the players should be used to it. Plus, there's an interesting question now in the, the rest of the URC because Leinster, which uh, supplies almost the ex- entire island team, uh, the, at least the bulk of them, uh, have got to come to South Africa again. And yeah. Yeah, they've got to come play on the high felt at some point. And with them being top of the URC log at the moment, do they send a week inside like they normally do? Or with Ireland a bit later in mind, do they send a full-string side to to u- utilize the conditions a bit more, get used to that. Mm. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And mm. of course, you know how much influence. And I know it's it's maybe a moot point because they're different teams. But uh, how much influence Jacques Ninaba will have on those Leinster players ahead of playing the Springboks? And I'm not saying Jacques going to give away any state secrets, but just his whole presence and his attitude and the way you approach defense and the way you approach mm. games. Um, yeah, that'll rub off on some of those Leinster players before they play, face the Springboks. And yeah, I think sitting here, we know it's going to be an extremely tough task um, to win those test matches, but not something the Springboks can't do. It's looking forward to a mouth-watering clash at Loftus and it's going to be interesting. You touched something interesting there in that uh, you, you mentioned that Jacques won't give away state secrets, but isn't that the nature of the, the beast now that you know, you can take up a new position and you paid for your expertise. How much do you share? What do you, what, I mean, this is almost like uh, enough fodder for a different podcast, but, um, you know, yeah. as, a, as a professional coach, well, uh, where, do you, where do you draw the line? Well, you could see it already, and we're moving just so we can move on to the next game there, because you could see it already in England's defence, which suddenly is suddenly using the rush defence. And, uh, yeah, they suddenly have a new assistant coach. Uh, well, they haven't quite grasped it, yes. as you can... But they were definitely yeah. trying it out. Yeah, yeah. And you could definitely see things that were learned from the Springboks approach in that game. Uh, just how good England are is a, is, is a very interesting question that is going to be debated a lot in, in the UK over the next couple of weeks. Um, I thought it was a terrible performance for them. And I was actually... I, I must admit, I was quite, uh, quite impressed with Italy, although by the time the <laughs> end of the game came, I felt... This is such a typical Italian performance. Yeah. Do so much to get so close, <laughs> and then fall so short again. And you just sort of, it was it was frustrating to watch. I don't mm. think England really deserved to win. And I thought another point about commentary there, if, if you listen to the commentary of that game, whoever was Martin Gillingham's co-commentator, if if that England team was playing that he was describing, <laughs> they should have won by fifty because they apparently yeah. were so brilliant. Yeah, it, it is frustrating sometimes to listen to the the comments. Um, you know, when you watch uh, Six Nations. Yeah, look, it wasn't a performance that England should be particularly proud of, uh, but, you know, it's. Um, I, th- I think there'll be a, a job in progress uh, for uh, for a while still under Borthwick. Um, I think, I don't think one should be too tough on them just yet. I think once they play the likes of Ireland and, and France, uh, they, you know, th- they're not going to have room uh, for the same kind of mishaps, especially on defence. So um, they're going to be judged a little bit differently then. So, uh, you know, there, there are certainly some improvements they need to make um, because it's either going to be a case of they get drawn closer to France and Ireland or they stay mid-table, if not 
slide backwards uh, well behind Scotland if they're not if they're not careful. Well, yeah, and I mean that brings us to that third game of that weekend as well, which was was Scotland Wales. Which um, I know some friends of ours who um, stopped watching at half time when Scotland were twenty points up, and then missed the entire comeback. And 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 <laughs> we uh, we Wales came back quite incredibly in that game, although. You didn't really feel Scotland were going to lose that game at any no. point. Um, it turned out to be probably, the, from just a fan's point of view, the most entertaining game of the weekend. Um, and it, it was a good watch. But Scotland are good, but they still don't have they don't have that sort of steeliness that you think. Mm. They, they are would, soft moments. Though. Yeah, yeah. They won't really trouble France or Ireland. You don't, you don't think that at the moment they'll come close. But they, mm. they, looking at those opening three games. Um, there's not really that much competition for Ireland. No, no, especially now after the first one is done. So, uh, you know, I, I think they will probably go on and, and you know, uh, win another Grand Slam. Uh, now it's a question of, um, you know, do England and or do Scotland seize the moment and, and make sure they can get past France and, and maybe secure mm-hmm. second place, which, which will be improvement for them as well. So... Uh, I, I just feel that a lot of this, not the sting, but like the interest in the competition uh, would have probably taken a, a, a step back, you know, yeah. after last week. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, you could, of course, have some cracking games further down the line. But in terms of who wins this thing, it, I think that that ship has sailed. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the fixtures for this week, I mean, Scotland, France and England, Wales on Saturday and Ireland, Italy on Sunday. Um Scotland's test will be France, and Fabian Galtier is under a bit of pressure. Probably the first time he has been under pressure mm. as, as French coach. Um, there was no, there was no disgrace in losing to Ireland, but it's the manner in which it happened. Yeah, and he's, you could see he didn't take it very well. If you no. see the comments at the the post match, he didn't want to discuss it. He didn't want to um, linger on what happened, and and it was almost. Uh, I want, I'm trying to think of the word, not sulking, but he was, he was almost. Yeah, sort of didn't really want to face what had happened. It was a bit indignant, actually. Look, um, yeah, of, of not at all typical of French people at times, <laughs> is it? <laughs> so. Look, when you when you draw something out of him, when he does, when he's prepared to speak, then uh, he can be quite forthright. So, um, so obviously that would have stung. And you're right; I think he will feel a bit of pressure. Uh, there's no doubt that France will be better um, in their next game and, and I think going forward in, in this competition. Uh, but I think it, this will speak to their desire to want to be better because th- I have no doubt that the World Cup uh, and the disappointment there must have lingered a little yeah. No, I mean, you were there and you saw the reaction of the French fans and mm-hmm. the way they were. Um, it was catastrophic I mean, they, for them as such. But, uh, yeah, they've got to bounce back against Scotland. That's probably the game of the weekend. Mm-hmm. England-Wales, uh, I mean, you almost, yeah, I suppose we'd see who who's <laughs> best of a bad bunch, I suppose, at this moment. But um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if Wales, despite that flurry in the second half, if they're that good. No. So whether they can do it two weeks in a row is an interesting one. And Ireland, to me, will probably, you know, Italy will be competitive, but they'll probably lose about 20, 30 points at the end. Yeah, I, th- I think Wales, uh, with the uh, relative inexperience in their team, I think game management will be an issue for them. But, you know, so you're going to have these pockets of uh, them playing out of their socks for a couple of minutes, but to sustain it over 80 minutes, I don't think they, yeah. they're there yet. And as for England... Um, and as much as we're saying that they're a work in progress, uh, I think there's enough there. I think they've got enough 
uh, experience to see them through in key moments. So mm-hmm. you've you've got to got to go England in that game. Before before we get to obviously the big news in South Africa for the week, uh, which is obviously Rassi Erasmus's reappointment as Springbok coach, uh, I think let's talk about the one game that, if it was built properly, would have been one of the highlights of the weekend, but almost slipped by unnoticed by 95% of the rugby world. It was a game in Cork between Munster and the Crusaders, <laughs> uh, which is the Pits the Super Rugby champions, technically, against the URC champions. Um, of course, some caveats to that. The Super Rugby champions have lost their coach. He's gone on to coach. Uh, Scott Robertson's gone on to coach the All Blacks. So they've got a new coach. Uh, and then they were also at their first game of a preseason. So they wouldn't yeah. have been highly tuned, whereas Munster were all, without all their island players and uh, have a number of injuries and are mid-season. So it was hard to really get a grasp of the game, but it didn't underline two things for me. Um, one being that uh, South Africa made the right choice in going north. Uh, I don't think there's a drop in standard in terms of that. The fact that Munster won the game 21-19, it's difficult to judge just how good they were. But I don't think, I think it's all, almost underlined that point for me. And then the second point for me was just how desperately we need a global season. To yeah. A game like this should be played by two full-strength sides in a top-building, televised, worldwide extravaganza. It's one of those things where you almost say from the outset, what's the point? Because unless you're going to have two teams in tip-top shape, got their best players, uh, have built up to that moment, uh, I, I think as an idea... Uh, you know, it's a good one, putting the best in the Southern Hemisphere against the best in the North. Uh, but, yeah, and unless you can put the, the, the best players and the, the best resources out there, uh, it's not worth having. Yeah, I, I, I watched the highlights about the only thing we could because it wasn't obviously on TV in South Africa. Uh, I don't think it was on TV other than maybe select New Zealand and maybe in somewhere in Ireland it was on TV. You're almost suggesting it shouldn't have been shown anywhere. No, I wouldn't get that far. I watched the highlights. That shows me I would have watched it. But, um, yeah, the, the Crusaders tries were pretty much all long-range, typical New Zealand efforts. And the Munster tries were pretty much line-out malls and pick-and-goes. And, um, all very predictable then. Predictable. So in five minutes it probably summed it up. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, also left you without that um, that good taste in your mouth that you'd want after such a potentially big game mm. and hopefully the next time it happens yeah, some people at World Rugby have got their house in order because I think it's a bigger question than that and we've discussed this before and we'll discuss it again probably at length at times is currently probably we're at the worst part of this um, that the global season isn't aligned because our Springboks play in what should be our off season our Box have to get, at this time of year, have to get six weeks off during a, the URC season. And now with the Curry Cup moving to late or late August, September, players who are playing in the Curry Cup who play in the URC have to get an eight-week window of, of complete breakers while in the middle of the URC, which makes that management for any coach yeah. um, ridiculously difficult. And until the, world, the global season sorted out, we're going to have this problem over and over and over again. So let's hope somebody listens at World Rugby. I'm not quite sure anybody does, but uh, let's hope so.
It's a case of, yeah, um, where's the money and how does that impact us? Why does it impact the bottom line? Yeah, sometimes it feels like two two spoiled children with their toys in different corners of a room. Anyway, they don't want to play together. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on to something a bit more, a bit better. Um, Maybe not the biggest state secret uh, that Rossi re-signed until 2027. I think probably if there was one surprise is the fact that we've all been hearing talk that he was going to re-sign until 2025. And then other Mizwan did a stick with Dion Davids would have probably taken over. The fact that he's committed to another full World Cup cycle, the chance of winning, uh, being part of a team that wins three World Cups in a row. Um, and some interesting uh, assistant coaches that he's, he's uh, put in place tells me that passion and that fire is very much still there for Rossi to win another World Cup. Yes, I mean, if you, I, I wasn't entirely surprised by the, you know, the duration of the contract. The, you know, the fact that he's going to go to twenty twenty seven, because as much as they talked up the resources they have uh, within their coaching structure, it was never clear that somebody else with from within was going to definitely take over. They, you know, they always. Uh, sort of uh, trying to douse those fires, so I, I wasn't surprised. Um, now, whether that we one should interpret that as a, a vote of no confidence in the you know the guys who had been who have been in the system, um, that's for for people to decide. Uh, as far as the additions they've made to the coaching structure is concerned, uh, the the Tony Brown uh, addition certainly for me is is an interesting one and one that um, certainly holds. Uh, a lot of promise. Uh, I think he can drag quite a few players along with him, um, if, especially if you look at the way the box have evolved over the last year and a half or two years. Uh, a player like Marni Lebok, for instance, could could benefit hugely uh, from a guy like Tony Brown. He's, he won't he won't be the only one. There are others as well. But um, just from the outside, I think that's probably the one that enthuses me most. Yeah, I think I think Tony definitely is the one that that's, yeah Jerry Flannery's been doing a good job with mm. Harlequins with defence, um, and he he did coach with Rossi and Jacques at yep. at Munster years ago, so that's that's not a surprise. I think the other one that was interesting to me was um, our guest from a few weeks ago, Jakob Paper, being appointed full time to the box management. Mm. As a laws advisor, and that tells me, um, and now maybe he just hinted, being, he hinted at some point. He did. He did say he had some like, role, yeah. but he wouldn't tell us at that <laughs> no. point. Um, and and that tells me that it's going to probably drive the overseas guys crazy. But all Russie's um, interesting theories about um, I won't say manipulating the laws, but tweaking the laws to your advantage, like the seven-one bench and the bomb squad and. Things like that. He's now got a full time law, law advisor that could help him look for these loopholes in, in the system. And, um, yeah, it's not that Jakob Paper hasn't helped the box out before because he has worked with yeah, them. Yeah, it's different now. Though. But it's different now. His job is actively to see ways that they can, I won't say exploit the laws, but use the laws to their advantage. Yeah, I don't know how Yaku's going to manage it because remember he told us that uh, he's got all these other things to do as well. He's got his business to run um, or businesses to run. Uh, he's going to spend time at home. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's going to be interesting for him. But yeah, look, it's, it's a wonderful addition to the to, you know to the box uh, setup. Uh, they of course have worked with referees extensively uh, for many years. Uh, you know, we've seen referees come in and out of that camp or that setup uh, for many years. So uh, to have somebody on a permanent basis just sort of solidifies um, that that entire drive to 
I won't say short circuit the system where you can, but it you know mm. it does give them an edge. Plus, I mean, given given the history um, that we know that the box have had with referees in the last couple mm. of years, um, having somebody there who who has an inside lane, who has the numbers, home numbers of everybody mm. on the world refereeing panel, surely can't hurt. Um, Yaku's worked with Joel Zutke and all the other refs across the world rugby for so long that I mean, for him to make a quick call to somebody is probably a lot better than. Rossi doing that after a game, um, or, yeah, and they're not making any videos or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I think it's just it's a, it's a very shrewd point, and it's probably a step further from having Nigel Owens that they wanted. I was earlier. about to say, I mean, we've got absolutely no right to call Yaku the poor man's Nigel Owens. I don't think any of us did. Yeah, we shouldn't. No, no. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, Papes is. Uh, he, it's going to be interesting. I'd love to know what that conversation with his wife was like, because <laughs> he, he, he sort of he, he made that point quite clear to us in our podcast that he has to spend more time. His daughters are getting bigger, and yeah. he needs to be at home more. And um, you know, the box do travel quite a bit they in do. the year. So uh, there's lots of camps and lots of other things, but uh, yeah, the other the other appointment was Dwayne Vermeulen, uh, which we saw coming quite the a while. Number eight, the yeah, as a roving coach, which is is quite an interesting role. Uh, we'll still get probably a bit more clarity yeah. on what that probably means, but it probably means that he's going to be the the almost ambassador of for Springbok rugby, going around smoothing things over with the provinces. Uh, he's played at most of the provinces. He has to go like, visit. Yeah. Uh, almost like an enforcer of the blueprint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, and I'd like to see uh, some of those CEOs might be quite intimidated by having to face Dwayne on certain things. But, um, yeah, he, I think it, that's an interesting role for him. And and potentially, uh, I won't say now in four years' time because maybe that's a bit too early, but potentially uh, a successor at some point to Rossi. Yeah, I'd, I'd, it'll be difficult to draw anybody in authority on that matter and see if, you know, yeah. they're not just closer. But, um, yeah, I think in one... One way or another, he will certainly be um, higher up the pecking order there. There's mm. no doubt uh, in time to come. I've, I think we'll probably see some sort of, as a roving coach, we might see him in a role that maybe takes a SAA side like Ms. Wandele Stick did or you know, some sort of invitational team at some point against somebody, um, you know, just to just to give him a bit more of those coaching credentials. And mm. uh, but I think, and, and I suppose man management. I mean, that's that's yeah. absolutely key. You you can have the all the IP that that is required for for a top job like that, but uh, you need the the people skills, the man management. Are we allowed to say man management? Yes, oh, we are. Yeah, we are. Um, the men's to, team. So. Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, it'll be very interesting to track his development from here on in. Yeah, I think, and coming back to just the point that we made at the beginning of this 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 part of the discussion about Ms. Wandili Stick and Dion Davids, uh, I think part of the, the, the issue that probably came up, uh, at least maybe from an SA rugby side, is they saw what happened in New Zealand with Ian Foster succeeding Steve Hansen. And almost, you know, sort of being ushered into the job. Now, they did it with Jacques Ninaba in a way, uh, and it worked for them, but Rossi was always around. Mm. Um, I think there was a bit of a danger that, and, and with no nothing against, because Dwayne Formulan probably falls in that category as well then, uh, nothing against the, the two gentlemen I've spoken to or any of, the, in, any of the assistant coaches, but when you've had somebody who hasn't um, almost had the Springbok coaching credentials on their own, and Jacques had the same problem in the beginning, mm. Um, yeah, cr- the public are a lot more critical and they're a lot more 
they don't accept your mistakes as easily, and mm. we saw that with Ian Foster. Um, the New Zealand public was extremely critical because he wasn't Steve Hansen, um, and they tend to turn on you a lot quicker. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting just to see in the, their roles going forward. Uh, I think, you know, that rest of the team's going to probably work as, uh, as, as, as well as they've worked over the last six years. But... Uh, Two things just lastly from my side on, on, on that. Uh, one being, I think this is probably going to be the most difficult World Cup cycle, and that's, that's saying something, given the fact that the first World Cup cycle, Russia had 18 months to prepare a team. It's, it's an interesting one in that the first one, there was less expectation. Now you're coming as double World yeah. Champs uh, with a, a squad that needs to be rebuilt, but you exactly. have the yeah, expectation. Yeah. So, and then the second, obviously, cycle, we had the Lions Tour, and COVID, which mm. the box lost a year of Test Rugby, and and then had a sort of a season where they had COVID restrictions and all sorts of quarantines and things like that, and didn't really have the time to build a team. So now they've got a full, hopefully a full, we don't know what the future holds. But a normal, uh, supposedly normal. Supposedly program. normal four-year cycle coming up. And if in that case, uh, as you say, an aging squad, how many of these guys are going to be around in the next World Cup? I'm sure a fair chunk of them will, but will they still be in the same form? Will they still be as, as dominant? And will they still be the same players in the team? And what new players will have come through? And we're already we're seeing, if you look across the URC teams, um, all four sides scrums are pretty potent. Um, there's some real good youngsters coming through. Uh, you see at halfback guys like Sanele Nohamba coming through. Uh, there's some great Midfielders coming through, Hinko van Veik, for instance, uh, and Sasha Feinberg and Gomzulu and a couple of the others. So there's a, there's a bunch of players over the next couple of years that we're going to see start challenging these guys for mm. the thing. Plus, you've got the rest of the world who's not just irritated that you won the World Cup, you've won double World Cups, and now you've even got, they're more um, determined to get you off that perch. Yeah. And then the one thing, final thing for me is that the fact that the box have never been a good team between World Cups. They've struggled between World Cups. And that would be the big challenge for me if they can change that you know, to to lead into a World Cup cycle. Um, Do you want to be Ireland? No, no. And, and no, not and not New Zealand of old as well. It used to be the best team between World Cups as well. Uh, but I think a bit more consistency between World Cups. I don't think, expect them to win everything. Yeah, but to be fair, if you're going to build towards something, it's, it's going to be give and take. And I know in the moment, uh, it's almost our job to be critical when things do go pear-shaped, because from time to time it will. I mean, the Wales test in, in Bloemfontein uh, yeah. is probably a prime example. Um, but it, it'll, be, it'll be very interesting to see what they do for that Wales test. Um, uh, do they do the same as they did in 2018? I mean, is it going to be a one-week gap or a two-week gap between that test yeah. and the island gap? Because if it's a two-week gap, it gives them more leeway. Yeah. If it's a one-week gap, do they then go uh, with with a, a bunch of new players that they think can sort of walk the distance with them to the next World Cup uh, and then sort of hold back, you know, your, your World Cup winners from last year and prepare them for uh, for that test series? Um, I think they probably better served if there was a two-week gap. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And also then I suppose the other thing that comes into play is if South African team does well in the URC, mm. um, yeah, like the Stormers were in the last two finals, those players, obviously, you've got to take into account. They might not play in that game as well. 
depending on on the, the timing. So yeah, there's a lot of questions around this, and a lot we're going to see. There'll be two weeks, I think, between the URC final and then. Well, we don't know whether it's going to be a week out from the Island Game or, the, or two weeks out. Yeah. So, but there'll be a fortnight, I think, at least. There usually is. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I haven't looked yeah. at the calendars yeah. just yet, but. Uh, I th- if I believe right, there was two weeks. So. Mm. But yeah, either way, that, that test still has to be officially confirmed. <laughs> so we'll wait for that, for the official confirmation. But yeah, lots to talk about, lots to see, and, and it's definitely going to be an interesting couple of months. Um, yeah, so lots to talk about this week, and we didn't even have a guest, and we, we, we talked all the time there. Yeah, let me just take this last sip of this wonderful bottle of red wine, and um, you can sign off on that note. <laughs> Talk so much, you wouldn't even have thought we had a bottle of red wine yeah. Anyway, that's to the last drop. Join us again next week. We'll be talking more rugby. And uh, yeah, till then, then chat then. Thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can find all the To The Last Drop podcasts on the Brendan Nell YouTube channel, iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.